0: Leviticus 14 from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, These are the the regulations for the deceased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird in the open fields. The person to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe with water. Then he will be ceremonial clean. After this he may come into the camp but he must stay outside his tent for seven days. On the seventh day he must shave off all his hair, he must shave his head, his beard, his eyebrows and the rest of his hair. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and he will be clean. On the eighth day he must bring two male lambs and one new lamb a year old, each without defect, along with three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. The priest who pronounces him clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and his offerings before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering along with a log of oil. He shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil pour it in the palm of his own left hand dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm and with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for him before the Lord. Then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. After that the priest shall slaughter the burnt offering and offer it on the altar together with the grain offering and make atonement for him and he will be clean. If however he is poor... And cannot afford these he must take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him together with a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, a log of oil and two doves or two young pigeons which he can afford, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. On the eighth day he must bring them for his cleansing to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest is to take the lamb for the guilt offering together with a log of oil and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He shall slaughter the lamb for the guilt offering and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest is to pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and with his right forefinger sprinkle some of the oil from his palm seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil in his palm he is to put on the same place he put the blood of the guilt offering, on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. Then he shall sacrifice the doves or the young pigeons which the person can afford, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering together with the grain offering. In this way the priest will make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one to be cleansed. These are the regulations for anyone who has an infectious skin disease and who cannot afford the regular offerings for his cleansing.
1: How about we pray? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for these pictures that you gave to your people thousands of years ago. Lord, thank you that we can read them and study them and Father, we pray that as we look at them that you would give us understanding. We pray that you might open the eyes of our hearts to be able to see uh, and to be able to love the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to whom these things pointed. Father, we, uh, we pray that, uh, that through studying this, Lord, that uh, we would love you more and more uh, and be devoted to our Saviour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if uh, if you're visiting uh, here for the first time today, then let me say welcome. Let me add my welcome to the, the welcome that's already been given, and let me assure you that uh, that we're not going to take you out the back after the service and uh, and slaughter sort of lambs and sprinkle you with water. Uh, for those who have been here for a while, we've been going through the book of Leviticus, uh, and we've seen how it was God's uh, really picture book in the Old Testament. It was God's way of of showing, of putting before uh, the people the things that he was going to do through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, At the moment we're in the middle of the laws about cleansing. Uh, Last week, if you were here, I'm sure you haven't forgotten that it was uh, about uh, the uncleanness uh, that is in people's hearts. We discover that our hearts, apart from Christ, are like toilets uh, which spew out the filth uh, of rebellion and hatred toward God. Uh, There's no tap which can turn it off. Uh, It's part of our nature since the fall, since Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, Sinning, uh, hating God, rebelling against God is part of what it means to be human uh, and that's our fundamental problem. And these uncleanness regulations were designed to make that clear. They were designed to make it abundantly clear that the problem is uh, within ourselves. So I guess last week what we did really was focus on the negative side of the clean and unclean laws Uh, and we saw right at the very end, very briefly, that the New Testament shows the fulfilment uh, of uh, of the cleansing idea and how that came about through Christ and I thought it would be useful, uh, I guess today, just to to, to pause uh, and to think about what it says in Leviticus 14 because Leviticus 14 is, if you like, the positive side of uh, the regulations about cleansing and uncleanness. Uh, to try and think a little bit about how these regulations showed the salvation about God uh, through Jesus Christ. So uh, just to give a little bit of a background to what's going on here in uh, Leviticus 14, this, uh, regula- these regulations uh, revolve around a person who's been declared unclean because of a skin disease. So I remember there was a couple of regulations. There was the clean and unclean food, there were skin diseases uh, and there was uh, the bodily emission stuff as well. And this one here is the regulation for what happens when a person has been cured of a a skin disease. And the chapter begins uh, not with uh, the the declaration of being unclean, so to speak, but with the uh, discovery that there is a person who's been cured of their skin disease. So they've had a disease, they've been declared unclean and now they've been cured uh, somehow. The first step then, once that happens, once that's been discovered, is that the priest would go outside the camp uh, and examine this person. And if they discovered that this person had really and truly been cured, then they would gather some cedar, uh, some, some scarlet yarn, some hyssop uh, and two clean birds. Uh, one of the birds was taken and that was killed over a clay pot filled with uh, clean water. Uh, and then the other bird was... Uh, the living bird was dipped uh, in that bloody water and allowed to fly away. The picture, I think, there is that this impurity, this defilement that was in this person uh, or or on this person, if you like, has been taken away. It's it's flown away as far away from this person as is possible. It's taken away. But the, uh, the ceremony went on. The priest would then dip the cedar and the hyssop and the yarn into the bloody water in that clay pot Uh, and he'd use that to sprinkle the unclean person. So uh, the cedar and the hyssop were probably tied together with the yarn and the red yarn and the red cedar were probably uh, reminders to the people of the need for blood uh, in this cleansing ceremony. Uh, So the priest would tie those things together, he'd dip them in the water uh, and then he'd sprinkle this person uh, and he would declare them clean. After that, still things to go on with. After that, the, un- the unclean person would uh, wash his clothes, uh, he'd shave off all his hair, uh, he'd bathe with water. And only once that had happened could he come into the camp. But once he came into the camp, he couldn't go into his own house quite yet. He had to stay outside his tent for another seven days. So he could come into the camp but he wasn't allowed into his own tent. On the seventh day he'd have to do it all again. He'd have to wash his clothes, he'd have to shave himself all over or herself all over and have to wash again. And then, and only then, would he be clean and able to go into his tent. I think the idea behind the washing and the shaving is remembering that this is all about skin diseases, uh, this particular ceremony, I think the picture is that there needs to be a a thorough and and comprehensive cleaning process taking place. It's not just uh, he has to wash his clothes, he has to wash anything that's come into contact with the skin disease, he has to uh, get rid of all the hair that's come into contact with the skin disease, he has to wash himself, which has come into contact with this skin disease. If you were here last week, you remember that this whole skin problem uh, was, a, was a picture of the contagious nature of sin, that, that sin is spreading and that it only takes a little bit to kind of spread throughout this whole camp. So this washing, this, this shaving, this cleansing was a picture of the fact that sin has to be taken far away from us that so it has to be radically and totally removed from us in order for us to be able to come into the presence uh, of God. We have, if you like, to be spiritually uh, shaved and spiritually washed. We saw last week, didn't we, that these laws about clean and unclean were never about animals. They weren't about skin diseases. They weren't about bodily discharges. But they were about the problem within our own hearts, that our own hearts are full of hatred and rebellion against God. Our hearts are like toilets spewing out the filth of rebellion and hatred. In that light, there are two glaring inadequacies which stand out about these ceremonies. Anyone who, in Israel who saw the deeper reality which these uncleanness regulations pointed to must have realised that shaving and washing uh, and, and killing birds over a pot of water wasn't going to do anything about their heart. Right? They must have known that, that, that water on the skin, it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't change hearts. Second, they must have realised that these regulations didn't actually do anything about the skin skin condition itself. So, these regulations don't bring healing to a person, right? It wasn't as though the person was outside the camp and they said to the priest, look, I want to be healed, would you come out here and we'll go through this, uh, this kind of regulations and then the skin disease will go away? No, it had already gone away before they even engaged in this ritual, Putting these two things together, I think it shows that these rituals, it was supposed to show these people that these rituals themselves were never the end goal. These rituals were always in themselves putting on display their own inadequacy and pointing people beyond the rituals to God himself. Who would cleanse them? Who would save them? It wasn't the rituals, it wasn't anything that they would do, it was the sovereign God who stood behind them. At the end of the the day, these rituals were designed to show that God was the one who was going to deal with the uncleanness of people's hearts. And yet, for all that kind of pictorial nature and all the the visuals that we get on the need for cleansing and, and how deep it has to go, the particulars, I guess, of how God was going to do that were still very vague, weren't they? Really, Leviticus really just says, look, this is what you need, God is going to do it, but it doesn't really spell out how it's going to happen. We saw at the end of last week that the New Testament makes clear how God is doing that. Jesus says in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So, so Jesus is saying that the Spirit is the way which God is going to clean people. Paul writes in Titus 3, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So, these writers are picking up on this Old Testament language and they're saying, look, this is fulfilled... By the Spirit. In Acts 15 Peter says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified, he cleansed their hearts by faith. Again, Peter's connecting the Holy Spirit with the fulfilment of all this Old Testament uh, uh, imagery. But you don't have to wait until the uh, the New Testament to be able to discover that that is the means which God is going to use to bring this imagery to a fulfillment. You can already find that stuff in the Old Testament. The, the classic example is Ezekiel 36. Uh, Ezekiel 36:25, "I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh." I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So even in Ezekiel, God is foreshadowing that the fulfilment of these uh, images is going to come through the spirit of God. In other words, these regulations about cleansing and uncleanness and these rituals that God made the people go through were God's way, God's Old Testament way, I guess, of saying, like the New Testament does, if you want to enter the Kingdom of Heaven, you need to be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 and that's really what these rituals are all about. They're really saying to people, if you want to enter the Kingdom of Heaven, if you want to enter the presence of God, you need to be born again, you need to be cleansed by the Spirit of God You will not get into heaven unless all the filth and the muck of rebellion against God and hatred toward God, unless all that is removed, it's cleansed away. It has to fly away like that bird released. It has to go as far away as possible. And that's not just a sort of a patch-up operation, is it? It's not as though God is saying, well, look, you know, I'll let you in if you kind of get to the 65% mark of cleanliness. He's not saying that. No, it has to be totally, utterly eradicated. There's the shaving, there's the washing, there's the washing of the clothes. There has to be no hint of sin. It's not just a patch-up operation, it requires a whole new nature. It's not something a ritual can do, it's not something we can do, it's something which is anchored in the power of God. As Ezekiel says, it needs God to take away our hearts of stone and to replace that with the Spirit of God which motivates us and shapes us to do what God desires. I think it's kind of easy, isn't it, to get a really negative picture of cleansing as you think about it. Cleansing is washing away and, uh, muck and filth. right? And so when you think of cleansing, you think about, about, uh, about removing sin. But I think there's kind of a positive aspect to your cleansing as well, which is important to remember. That is, God is removing all this muck and filth in order to fill us with joy and with delight and with love and with kindness. And I think if we don't see both, both sides of that, we, we end up in a very negative perspective of the Christian life. No, God is cleansing us, he's renewing us not just so that sin is done away with, but so that sin is done away with to make room for the love and the joy and the delight in God and his son Jesus Christ. That is the message behind cleansing. It's not that that cleansing takes place straight away. We don't become perfect until these bodies of death are taken away. No, but God is saying that we need to be cleansed through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now is a deposit, guaranteeing that final victory, that final victory over sin. So it's kind of, I guess, a a a, a biblical theology, if you like, of uh, of, uh, of cleansing from Leviticus. And I guess we've seen that uh, that the, that being in the presence of God uh, takes this cleansing, it takes this rebirth, it takes this renewal through the Spirit. Uh, But I guess as you look at Leviticus 14, you can't help but notice that there's a lot to do with blood as well, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of water stuff, there's a lot of sprinkling stuff, but there's also a lot of blood. And how do the two connect together? How do those two things go together? If you look at Leviticus 14, you see the, uh, there's this, this, the first ceremony involved killing a bird and letting its blood mix with water, right? So there's blood there. After shaving the, the person uh, and after bathing, they were supposed to take a few lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. Uh, and then the priest would offer the, four of the five sacrifices. Remember in the first chapters of Leviticus there were five sacrifices that God instituted? Well, four of them come up here again Uh, in this chapter as well. So verse 12, the person would offer the guilt offering. The guilt offering, remember, was a picture of of making amends for robbing God. In verse 19, he would bring the sin offering and the sin offering was a picture of making atonement for unintentional sin. Uh, In verse 19, again, he'd offer the burnt offering which was a picture of being totally consumed uh, with service to God and then in verse 20 he'd offer the grain offering which was a picture of love for God. Remember that was the, that was the, uh, the baking one. The only one missing here is the fellowship offering which was a banquet of celebration uh, of a meal with God. That was sometimes called the peace uh, offering. So we've got blood, we've got all, almost all of the sacrifices from the early chapters of Leviticus and how are they connected with Cleansing. Are they the same? Are they different? If they're different, how are they connected? Well, as you go through this chapter, you, you realise something else which is really crucial. And that is that cleansing is always distinguished from atonement. So remember, atonement means satisfying God's wrath against us because of our sin. That satis- the satisfaction of God's wrath, that putting away of God's wrath, is always distinguished from being cleansed. So verse 19... Uh, then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Verse 29, uh, the rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed in order to make atonement for him. Verse 31, in this way the priest will make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one who is to be cleansed. So there's the one who is to be cleansed and there's this process of making atonement The symbolism, I think, works like this and it's pretty straightforward. Water cleanses, blood makes atonement. Water washes away filth and muck. Blood takes away God's anger and wrath against sin. I think when we uh, use... The uh, cleansing in our language about salvation, we tend to kind of get a little bit confused. I kind of laugh to myself. In Jesus loves me, this I know, because we we sung about washing away our guilt. I think it was, and and often we use language like that. But in the Bible, I think the two are more clearly distinguished. That is, the Spirit washes away the sinfulness of our hearts. The blood of Christ washes away. Uh, <laughs> washes away. Makes atonement for. God's anger against our sin. You see that the connection as well in the in the ritual with the bird, right? Remember that the 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 first bird was killed and the and the blood spilled into the water and then that water was sprinkled on the person. There's there's blood and there's and there's washing, and the two are distinct but intimately connected. The connection between the two becomes really clear in verse 20 where it says, where it talks about bringing all the offerings to make atonement for him and he will be clean. In other words, the connection between the two is this, that cleansing is grounded in atonement. There is no and can be no cleansing by God without putting away the wrath of God against sin and against sinners. hurtling forward into the New Testament that's another way of saying that cleansing, the cleansing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit is fundamentally grounded in Jesus' work on the cross. Right? The work of the Spirit, the reception of the work of the Spirit is fundamentally grounded in Jesus' work on the cross to put away God's anger and wrath against sin. So going back to John chapter 7 if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living, of living water will flow from within him. But then John goes on to explain, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given. Why? Since Jesus had not yet been glorified. In John's Gospel, Jesus' glorification refers to his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So John is saying, that up until the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this full cleansing work of the Holy Spirit was unavailable. It required the putting away of God's wrath and anger against sin. Again in Titus, where he's talking about the washing of rebirth, he says it comes by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Again, the washing of rebirth, the new life in the Spirit is all dependent, is all anchored in atonement through the blood of Christ. And of course that's true. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that that should be true? Because the Spirit is God's most personal gift of himself to us. And how could he give such a rich and wonderful gift? unless his anger against sinners was decisively put away once and for all through the death of Jesus Christ. You don't get the Spirit of God without Jesus. You don't get the Spirit of God without the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Who would give their enemy the most precious gift in the world? Simon Wiesenthal Uh, Wiesenthal was a Nazi hunter. He died a few years ago. I don't know if you've heard of Simon Wiesenthal but he established a a Nazi hunting centre in uh, Europe to find all the Nazis uh, who never were brought to justice. Can you imagine Simon Wiesenthal sitting down with Adolf Hitler and Simon Wiesenthal giving him the most precious gift that he owned? It wouldn't happen, would it? That kind of thing doesn't happen because they're, they're fundamentally opposed. They're arch enemies. Wiesenthal was a Jew, Hitler was a Nazi and never the twain shall meet. It's the same with us and God. We don't get the precious gift of God's own spirit unless we've been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. the renewing work of the Spirit, it doesn't depend on anything else that you might do except to look to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not a matter of you cleaning up your life, it's not a matter of you kind of working yourself up into a religious frenzy. If we can grieve the Spirit, the Bible tells us that, we can, uh, we can quench the Spirit, the Bible tells us that too. But this fundamental work of new life, of new creation which comes through the Spirit is grounded in nothing else but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's important to remember. Why is that important to remember? I think because it's so easy to focus so much on the work of the Spirit in giving us new life that we forget that that's anchored in Jesus and in knowing Jesus and in accepting and believing and trusting that Jesus Christ died for sins and for sinners. Yes, we need to be born again, but John's Gospel, where that comes across so clearly, never says believe in the Spirit or look to the Spirit. We're never called to repent and believe in the Holy Spirit. No, we're we're called to repent and believe in Jesus, aren't we? We're called to look to the Son of Man lifted up. We're invited to come to him to receive living water. It's so easy to focus on the work of the Spirit and to forget that this work of the Spirit comes through our gracious Saviour, Jesus Christ and that what we need most of all is to look to Him, lift it up on a cross. Through Him comes the living water. Ultimately the key point is this, you don't get the Spirit of God without the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And already in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, and these ceremonies, God was pointing to that. But uh, this whole cleansing ceremony here in Leviticus 14 gives us one, very, one last sort of very rich picture, I think, which is worth spending a moment uh, just to dwell on. This chapter begins with a powerful reminder of the cost of being unclean. It says in verse 3, the priest is to go outside the camp and to examine this person. What was the cost of being declared unclean? The cost of being declared unclean was that you were forced, sentenced to a life outside the camp of God, outside the camp of God's people. You had to wear, up, you had to wear torn clothes. You had to let your hair grow long. You had to cover the lower part of your face. When anyone came Near, you have to sort of cry out, unclean, unclean. On top of that, this is what uh, chapter 13, verse 46 says. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. These people were separated from God, separated from the family of God. They were cast out, they were cut off. They were alone, they were under judgement. It's hard to imagine, I think, just how that felt. Imagine living a life, ostracised outside Launceston. No one could come and visit you. When anyone, anyone came, whenever anyone came near, you had to cry out, get away from me, get away from me. Cut off, alone, under judgement. That's a picture of what it's like to be unclean spiritually. If we're unclean because of the sinfulness in our own hearts, we're cut off from God. We're cut off from God's people. We're cut off from fellowship with God. We're alone under judgement outside the camp. But this cleansing ceremony gives us a picture of a radical reversal, doesn't it? Of a transformation The priest goes outside the camp to examine this person. He goes outside, he pronounces him unclean, he brings him back in. He brings him back into the camp and into fellowship with God. All of us are born outside the camp. All of us are born under God's judgement. All of us are born unclean and needing to be brought back. And here's the picture of what God does through Jesus Christ. If we believe in him, he brings us back inside the camp, born outside, brought back in, cleansed, renewed, brought into fellowship with God and with the people of God. What an amazing picture, isn't it? It's an amazingly graphic picture of where we were and of the tremendous benefit which comes through knowing and believing in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that what was once made known only in shadows and in pictures has now been fully revealed through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that through his death, through his taking your wrath, against sin on himself. Lord, thank you that by believing in him and putting our trust in him, we can be forgiven and cleansed from all our uncleanness. Lord, thank you that through that we can have boldness to approach the throne of grace. Father, help us to accept that and to receive that. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to be able to comprehend the tremendous blessing which it is to be brought from outside to inside your camp, brought near through the blood of Christ. Father, we pray that meditating on that and reflecting on that would give us great joy and tremendous hope. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.